0: What
1: we do here is go back, 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 It does no service to creating value for people where I came from if I won't say where I came from. And so nobody thought, any, thought this movie was going to work, and it did. One of my greatest struggles as a journalist is that I'm an emotional person and I'm a sensitive person. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 Knows. 10,000 Knows is built on the premise that hearing stories of struggle from people who most of us would consider to be successful is a way for the rest of us to realize that we're not alone. If you've already subscribed on iTunes and you like what you hear, please share it with others. You can take a screenshot of your phone while you're listening, post it on your social media, tag at Matty Dell on Instagram or at Matthew Del Negro on Twitter and Facebook, email it to friends, or just let people know it exists and how you found it. If you can leave an iTunes review, even better. That really helps. Either way, I appreciate you listening, and I hope you're as inspired by my guests as I am.
0: I was working like every day of the week, 100 hours, up at night, staring at the ceiling, trying to figure this thing out and failing miserably. Welcome to episode 23. I had a chance to sit
1: down with my friend Colin McIntosh, co-founder of the new hedge fund, Carbon Beach Asset Management Fund. We talked about success, hard work, uh, setbacks, sometimes self-imposed. Colin uh, took it on the chin in the wing business in New York City, as you'll hear about. And we even have a Story about a young superstar that you definitely know, but uh, I don't want to give you any uh, spoilers right now. I hope you enjoy the show. Okay, so I'm here with my friend Colin McIntosh. He is a, uh, a co-founder, would you say, yeah. of Carbon Beach Asset Management Fund. It's a hedge fund. Here, get a little closer to the mic over okay. there. Yeah, there you go. Um and uh, I've known him for a few years now. We we've worked together in in various capacities. I don't know if we'll get into that or not. But uh, thank you for being here with me. Well thanks for having me, Matt. Uh, and your your partner here at the fund is uh, Toby is is out because his wife is pregnant and uh, he's is he at the
0: hospital? I think today they're delivering. They were going to do the whole pitocin epidural um, cocktail and get the get the baby out. He's re- she's really late. Okay. Um, hold on. Just do me a favor. Point that toward yourself a little
1: bit. Put it in your lap. Here, let's I'll actually, let's start here. over. You want to do that and stay? Yeah, yeah I'll just sit up. Okay. Um, just because I'm worried about uh, sound. You know what? I was going to start over, but we're going to just keep all the wards here. That's what we do. Because you were nervous. Colin was nervous about uh, being here on mic. He says that he's he's not a talker, which uh, I, I know is false because we could talk for hours. But... Um, but uh, this is how casual it is. There's, there's no magic to it at all. Uh, so, y- you know, the, the whole podcast is about, it's 10,000 no's. It's all about overcoming adversity. And I know you've had uh, a few things that I find really interesting. First, I wanted to go back to, you were, you were born and raised in New Jersey.
0: Yeah, and- Glen Ridge, um, about 50 miles outside of New York. Uh, and went to Syracuse. Um, undergrad, undergrad, graduated yeah. in 89 and moved right to Manhattan. Um, right after school worked for Lehman brothers. Okay. But what he's leaving out and what I find
1: interesting about him, cause I didn't know this for like three years of knowing you and like working pretty closely with you. We were actually working on developing, uh, some material to, for a script together when he was kind of putting his toe in the water of Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And, um, I didn't find out till like three years into it that you were an all state tennis player. So, uh, he's very, he's very, uh, secretive about his accomplishments and very humble about things. But, um, tell us a little bit about tennis, but like, you're so shy. You're like not talking into the mic. You got okay. um, go.
0: Yeah. So tennis, um, I grew up a baseball player and kind of like Ollie when turning to the golf, foot um, so I grew up playing baseball and didn't really care for tennis, uh, but played this game called platform tennis or paddle tennis. So I used to play a lot in the uh, in the fall and winter when baseball wasn't around. So I was a big baseball kid, and so in paddle tennis, which is played in the Northeast, it's kind of a little bit of a country club sport. Um, which is embarrassing to say because I wasn't really a country club kid, but it was, it was popular in our Northeast, popular in our town. It was probably, probably elbow we, we in high school. I never played it. She has a chicken wire. Yeah, and they, they had it our high school. It's I kind of a never... fun thing to do. It's like a spongy ball. And um, so I played that a lot growing up and was really good at that. Like, when you were how old? Like, like 15, 16. Uh, in high school, junior high, and was actually in that, I was number one in the nation. In the nation? In the nation, yeah. But there was a ton of kids sh- in it, but yeah, you playing that round, me? I was really good at that. But Holy. So tennis was one of those things. Wait, that, how did they even, they rank you number one They rank the you. They, they had a magazine for it. Yeah. Are you and, serious? And then, uh, and with Evan, I was, when I was like 14, you know, Evan Derwin, we yeah. were like third ranked in the country. And we used to go to these really fancy country clubs around the country. We went, to, went and played one tournament down in Philadelphia uh, at the Meridian Cricket Club which is a super nice club. They had like a bowling alley in the club. It was um, really high-end, super super waspy. And I remember Evan and I were there, and we, we told these people, they were asking, asking us where we were from. We were saying Glen Ridge, and they had no idea where Glen Ridge was. And I said Montclair, and they're like, no, I don't know where Montclair, New Jersey was. I said, I said Newark, New Jersey, because, you know, eight miles away. And they're like, yeah, we know Nork New Jersey. And Evan's like, you an idiot. Don't tell these people we're from Nork, New Jersey. So... Um, Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm going to That's so here. funny, man. I mean,
1: so, so again, I've known you for, what, like seven or eight years now? And I've never, I never even knew you played pat, platform tennis, tennis or the, whatever the you call it. Northeast thing. Number yeah. one in the nation. So, okay. So what was it about so this? So
0: Evan was on the tennis team. He was captain of the tennis team. I was playing baseball. I love baseball. And I was a decent ball player. And uh My freshman year, they wouldn't put me on the varsity team. I was like on JV or freshman team. And I I wanted to play at the higher level, which like a lot of the kids my age were still, were on like the bench on the varsity team. I was a little frustrated or whatever. And I felt like there wasn't any way you could kind of prove yourself. It was more of one of these situations where if the coach liked you or whatever, if you were a bigger kid and I was never a big kid. So Evan turned to me and said, you know what? You're a great paddle tennis player. Why don't you do tennis? And I was like, "Ah, I don't want to, you know, I don't play tennis that much. He goes, you know, come down the courts. I'll, you know, I'll get you in gear. You can be a decent tennis player. So freshman year in high school, uh, when you started. I just started playing in like think, I think in the spring or whatever. Didn't didn't go out for the team or anything like that. But sophomore year, I went out for the team, and was and the teams have like seven men on it. There's three singles players and two doubles players, two, two doubles teams, and so um, they started me out like the twelfth guy in the team. So I would have been JV tennis, which is kind of like. The ultimate loser. Like you know, you definitely weren't like the quarterback of the football team. You're like twelfth guy on the tennis team. Is like yeah. the <laughs> worst situation. The coach didn't know who I was where I didn't like, and I didn't really have much of a game anyway. But I was competitive and had the paddle tennis thing and kind of figured it out. And by the end of the season, I was like fourth on the team. I was uh, first doubles, and we were a decent team. We had a, we had a you know nice high school and a, a, a good program for tennis. So sophomore year, you know, you do your challenges and uh, and and then junior year went in and started doing really well, and they made me a singles player. You have to challenge the guys on your team, you beat those guys. And then senior year, the guys ahead of me on the team, I beat like in these challenge matches. And they were like going to really good schools and they were like getting recruited as tennis players. And they're like, And did you never you had never even thought of this? No, no, and I was just like, those guys had like gotten serious lessons. They'd go on the, the in the winter breaks. They'd go down to like Bollettieri's and, the, and uh, Harry Hopman's tennis academies. And I never even took taken a lesson. I was like, I just had. To, I was like, cut, charge, a net, lob, do all the stuff that like drove really good players crazy. <laughs> so, so I turned to the coach. I said, just just put me at third singles. I know I can dominate there. And then, sure enough, so at third singles, I was all state. So it wasn't like I was like one of the top players in New Jersey. I was like. For third singles, I was one of the top players, a third singles player at our high school. I don't even know what that means. So, that yeah. shows you how much I know about Well, it sport. doesn't mean much. It really, it's, a, it's but I was a Third decent. singles
1: is like a different bracket? Is that it's just
0: there's a the first singles player and he plays against the best player of Got the it. other team. Got and it. funny enough, when I was going to high school, the guys that were really good, the best players in the in the state, were the, the twins, Lyle Menendez and Eric Menendez. And they were like, Lawrenceville or Princeton Day, I'm not sure. Wait, really? Yep. The Menendez Twits? The, the Menendez Twits the- were in New Jersey then, and they were playing, they were playing at Lawrenceville. Wait, the ones that, that killed off for- the birds? Oh, my God. Really? Yeah, and I knew some of the kids that knew them from paddle tennis, because we used to play, like when I used to play competitive paddle tennis, we'd play against these guys that were from from that area, and they knew those guys. And they, wow, they were like true. considered the best tennis players in New Jersey at the time. Really? Yeah. That's so. wild. Well, actually,
1: you know what? That brings me to somebody else that you know. Or new, uh, growing up, which this this is always crazy. I guess you know we could talk about it because we're not. We're just it's just kind of a story of a, of a friend. Right. Um, your so your sister. You went to Syracuse undergrad. Right. Your sister was in the theater program. She's older than you, six years older, was it? Right. She's and six. Your, years your brother's older. five years older than you. Right. So, <laughs> t- tell us the story about when your sister went and took her friend or your brother's friend into right. the city. For auditions uh, and all that stuff.
0: So uh, Glen Ridge, uh, I had a brother that's five years older than me. Was six years older than me. And my sister um, was always growing up playing the piano, singing, singing lessons, always in the theater, was the lead for the school play. Guinevere and Camelot was way into it. it used to do with... Um, Going to New York City, do theater at all in the New York City area. There, yeah, uh, off Broadway stuff. So she was always into that. My dad was always a big fan of Broadway shows and that type of stuff. My parents both were, and so um, my brother's best friend tried out for the play of Guys and Dolls. It got, um, I think it was Nathan Detroit. So he wasn't sky masters. And he wasn't even the lead in the play. But yeah, and he didn't get it. He didn't get the lead, but he was he was Nathan Detroit. And he was really, really good at it. And so at that point, my sister was a year older than my brother. And she was at Syracuse. She was in the VPA program there, Visual Performing Arts. And um, she had done, I think she was doing summer stock that summer in in Cape Cod. And my brother's friend, this guy Tom Maypother, wanted to go into New York and have someone to take him in there and, and show him a little bit of the ropes, I guess. And my sister didn't really know the ropes, but like anyway. But she was in the Syracuse program. Yeah, at that she, point. she knew, she, she, knew she, yeah. she knew where to go and kinda kinda of, kind of a general idea. So she she took him to into New York. And um they come back, she comes back that day and they were at the dinner table and my brother's like, how'd it go? And uh, she's just like he Tom has no idea what he's doing. He's way head over his skis. He's going for roles he has no business going for. He thinks he can sing and, 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 and he can't sing. He can't, he's, he's really got no talent and just basically buries him. My brother and sister fight. You know, I have a big argument at the and did, table. And
1: then, not your brother says something like, don't talk that way about Tommy.
0: Tommy's yeah, yeah. a good kid. No, no, my brother defends his friends and defends anyone. He's, and he gets emotional. And, and, and Tommy and him are, are best buddies. And, um, and so uh, I guess long story short is, um, I won't jump to the, the final reveal, but uh, he, he, Tommy, had tons of persistence. He got an agent in New York. um, and He went off and did a movie. He did a movie with Brooke Shields, and that was a big thing. We were all excited for that. Like, wow, what is she like, whatever. And, you know, he'd be like, oh, it's great. You know, I got in there. And then the thing is, then he went down to Philadelphia, and he came back, and he's like, I'm in this film with— Sean, Sean Penn Heng. and Timothy Hutton was big Timothy then. Hutton, yeah. And he's telling us, and I'm, I'm listening to this. So he's telling more of my brother and my brother's friends, but he used to always come to our house and I'd listen in. Yeah. I'd, I'd hang out with him. And so he's like, you know, they're accepting me. They're letting me like write some of my lines to the roles. He's like, and we're like, really? Like we're kind of like, you know, almost a little bit in disbelief. We're like yeah. It's like, yeah, it's great, man. They're letting me do all this stuff. I'm really into it. And, um, and then you went and saw the movie, right? No, and then the movie oh. wasn't out. And then he said, and then we see him the next time. I think, and he shows up, like, in a white BMW at our house with this tiny little girl, and she's cute, whatever. And we we find out, or I find out, that she was in Playboy, and the girl's Rebecca DeMorning. And so Tommy's like, yeah, I'm going to star in this film. And Tommy, like, growing up, was always, like, a big talker, a big dreamer, uh, as we found out. And uh, so... You know he. So he I'll basically, just, I'll all of a sudden, the people.
1: you ended up going. To the, oh, go on.
0: Wait, I didn't go to the. I didn't go to any of those premieres for that. My brother would. My brother would go to Top Gun premiere in New York, America, and went to, to all that stuff. But and they didn't really have premieres for him until like Top Gun. Like, you
1: just killed our, our reveal. So little Tommy.
0: Yeah. So everybody
1: Tom, was Tom Cruise, who, who, who <laughs> like basically doesn't. Hit it
0: big, like, immediately.
1: Yeah. But I love the story and the reason I had you bring it up, and we don't have to go so much further. But you told me that story a while ago. And and what I love about it is, like, hearing, you know, this is a guy who, like, you couldn't be a bigger star. When I was a kid, there wasn't a bigger star than Tom Cruise. You know, he was the, he was like the movie star. And to hear that like, you know, your brother going to <laughs> your sister, like, you know, don't mess with Tommy, yeah. he's, he's trying to, I, I love I love that because I'm I'm fascinated with the origin stories and and where, you know, that's what this whole 10,000 I, I, knows is about, like where people came from and how they believed before other people believed in them.
0: And more than anything, like with Tom, it's going back to him and he was like, the sir and the ma'am is not an act. Like, he was like that with my parents. He was very, he had great Formal. manners growing up. Very nice, very respectful. nice to me. Like, most of my brother's older friends were, like, kind of crummy to me. But Tommy was always nice to everyone. Um, wasn't, like, the most handsome guy in the school. Wasn't, like, wasn't even the lead in the school play, really, even though he stole the show. Yeah. And, um, and, and so he had a single mom. I think he had three older sisters or two older sisters and and Kaz was his younger sister. And they're all super nice people. And we lived in a like upper middle class town, nice town. And most of the kids would go to like 99% of the kids would go to a four year uh, college. And I think the situation with him is like, he's like, I'm just going to be an actor. I'm going to go for it. You know, probably, you know, he wouldn't need to get a scholarship to go to a college, a four year school or something like that. So you know he was put under the gun, and you know a guy made it happen right from the get-go. And the yeah. first thing he did is he bought his, uh, I think he bought his mom his home down in the uh, Jersey Shore. So, oh. so he, uh, cool. he's just a, he's a good guy. And he and then the, the final thing with him, I, I don't want to drag on too much about yeah. Tommy because yeah. it's kind of like a little pedestrian. But, um, yeah, I just wanted to bring it up for that little thing. Well, uh, give me the final thing. And then the final bit. thing is, and he always and his sister I think was his. Uh, publicist or, or PR person, and she would always invite Randy, my brother, to the, uh, to the different premieres and the after parties and like that. And then so one time I got to go with Randy. It was like in between girlfriends. He'd usually take a girlfriend to something like this or go single. But I got to go to A Few Good Men, uh, which is a great film. Great. And then my sister knew Aaron Sorkin at Syracuse. They, he was also in the VPA program. Uh, okay. He was an actor. So she was like, hey, say hi to Aaron because he wrote that play. Yeah. As it was originally played. So I went to the premiere. It was at the Zigfield in Midtown. And um, and real quick, we sat in his seats. I think he was dating Nicole at the time. So his sisters like gave my Randy and my, myself the seats to sit where they were gonna sit. And like Demi Moore is there, and Aaron Sork and Rob Reiner is the director, and all these like famous people. And so we're sitting there, and we're like, this is ridiculous, this is great. And we went to the after party. And it was at uh, it was at the plaza, which was across the street, and Trump was there. That's so crazy. Brother, Trump oh owned it, God. and we went there. It was like a hundred person thing, and people were running around. Nicholson was there, and uh, I mean, that's so crazy. And we it, just
1: saw we just saw Trump. We were watching with the kids uh, Home Alone two, and Trump walks by as himself, and I was just like, I feel like it's like right. It's so it's so. Uh, interesting and i, I don't sorry want to, to get into, the into no 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 true we'll, stuff, we'll,
0: but he's he's a good guy i know all the stuff
1: that goes on out there no in, we, we don't there, and we he, don't even have to get into i brought it up simply for that that fact of like the the hearing about someone who who's such a, a kind of household name and hearing about him before he was i find that interesting but but you know you talked about your brother and one of the things with you so so colin uh when when i met you you were really kind of retired. Uh, you, were, you were like a convertible bond salesman who was retired basically when I met you. You were about 40. And um, prior to that, though, one of the things that, that where I felt like I really bonded with you was you told me the story of out of Syracuse, you came You came out, you worked on Wall Street for a little bit, made a little money, not a ton, but a little bit. And then you and your brother opened a wing business. Yeah. Buffalo yeah.
0: Wings. The, Tell us a little the, bit the story about this. that. I did like five years at Lehman um, in, uh, in operations, and I couldn't move up to the sales or trading desk. That was the plum jobs on Wall Street, being a salesman or a bond trader. And so, um, so a little bit frustrated, but was living in New York City. I was still making a good. I was making more than my friends that were working in advertising at the time. So they were still paying me decently. And, uh, and was like a vice president by the time my, my early 20s, my 24, 25 years old, in operations. And so uh, with the big thing back then was this company called Atomic Wings, and uh, gosh, I forget that There was a place down in the village. Uh, it was another wing place down there, and we'd go into these places, and they didn't have this honey mustard wing. It was called Sassy Sauce that we used to love up at Syracuse. And we'd go in there and we'd be drunk. We'd be eating these. wings like, I have to hit Sassy Sauce. This would kill. This would be the greatest thing ever. So, you know, at one point, I'm a little bit frustrated with my job on Wall Street. And I, I, I call that guy up in Syracuse to see if he'd be interested in licensing the Sassy Saucers uh, his product. So I call up this guy, Sal's Birdland up in upstate New York. He's up in Rochester. He's in Syracuse, Oswego. I say, we'd be interested in uh, franchising and licensing it down in New York, Hoboken area. And so um, he's like, sure, and quotes me a price. And so I started thinking about this thing. I'm like, ah, oh, let me go for it. And I had some money. I put some money together. And a couple of my friends like, yeah, we'd be interested in that. They throw five or 10 grand into it. But I was mostly the money. And so we do this. We opened the first one in Hoboken, New Jersey. And it does all right. It does decently. And I was like, oh, let's expand this. And my, Actually, my brother was running it. And then I decided after you, a couple you months. you kept your day, your day job? I kept my did, day job. But yeah. after a couple months, I, you know, I was like, oh, I want to go to this. I want to take this. And like, it was decent enough in Hoboken. I was like, I want to get this thing and kit it out and get it like in a bunch of different places and, and make it a Boston chicken and, uh, and crush it. So I quit my day job, which everyone thinks I'm nuts about doing. And I'm like, no, no, no. And uh, take all my money. Put it in this thing. Open up and all mid- of your own money. All my own money. Put it, in, yeah, yeah. and then all the money I could borrow, which that was just a couple months down there, about six or eight months down the road. How like, old are you at this point? Twenty-four. Oh God. Okay. Yeah. So, but I'm not married. I don't have kids. it Doesn't matter. I can I can make my mistakes, and uh, and sure enough, I could absolutely carry it out. Like the restaurant business, anyone that makes it there is like amazing. It, it's blood money though. It's a hundred hours a week, and when I was doing it. I was working like every day of the week, 100 hours, up at night, staring at the ceiling, trying to figure this thing out and failing miserably. And we opened up in uh, downtown Manhattan next to the trade centers on on Murray Street. We had a couple of places on the Upper West Side, a place on the Upper East Side. We were in Gentleman Jacks for a little bit. Oh, yeah. Which you bartended at, I think. No, I never bartended
1: Gentleman Jack's. I bartended in a bunch of other places, but not not there. But I... I Dapper Dog. I was a patron. Oh, uh, Dapper and, Dog, I was a patron and, there, and, too.
0: Um, and so a bunch of different New York City bars and the one place in Hoboken. And it got absolutely carried out. And it didn't take long for us to get carried out because we had no idea what we were doing. How many... Was it months or years? I would or? say it was about 18 months by the time I was like, I had been busted. I had lost well over like a hundred grand of my own money. Lost like probably about fifty or sixty grand of friends' money, family oh. money. Yeah. So no one was really particularly happy. Car, I was a pretty didn't, happy. Didn't the, your car get the boot on uh, it because my you car. used
1: to go was it was the story that you used to go to different <laughs> restaurants, like or to, to to have your wings there and you would park illegally
0: and you'd come out and get all these parking tickets. I, we something. had I had a Toyota pickup truck that was just beat to hell. Um because you'd park and drive around New York and be delivering chicken to all different places (laughs) and get tickets. And what my trick was, I would uh, take the car and park it up close. I took the license plate off the front of the car and then take the car back up against another car pretty darn close. So they couldn't see the license license plate. And eventually that car that was parked close by me would pull out and I'd get the thing towed. and And I had tickets and it was a disaster. And... Um, and, one of my, and I finally sold it to one of my friends. I was so in hock with Visa and MasterCard and every other place would call me. Because you'd read these magazines like Bootstrap, you know, take your credit cards, max them out, put them into your business. and yeah. you know, not Those are the stories
1: when they work. Yeah,
0: exactly. And I, and <laughs> for every done, one of those stories that works, for every Kevin Smith that, uh,
1: that made it as a filmmaker because he maxed out his credit cards on a film, like, you know, there's, there's 100,000
0: other guys that... that you know, went down in flames. I never did the giving blood, but um but did the the maxing out the credit cards, all of them, and they'd send you like six I had six or seven of them maxed out. It's nuts. Um and and so they uh they would call my house, my friends would be over and the phone would ring, they'd pick up and like Conn doesn't have any money and they hang up on these people. <laughs> it almost got like comical. Um so I ended up having to like sell the truck to a friend, didn't realize that I didn't have the title or license, I owed the money on that, kind of screwed over my friend for like six months so I could pay off the truck and actually could take title to it. So I I was pissing off everyone. I I think some people are still pissed off at me, but. Yeah. um, And you ended up with uh, meningitis, didn't you? I ended up with meningitis. I uh, I ended up on IV for about six weeks in my arm Uh, and uh, was just a mess. Uh, just an absolute mess. And so I had a friend at Lehman that I used to work with before, before I did the chicken wing nonsense. And, uh, and he called me and said, hey, you're everywhere. I see these fat guys' wings all the place. Can I invest? <laughs> and I said, do me a favor. He's like, what? I was like, can you get me a job back on Wall Street? He's like, are you kidding me? He's like, I was like, this is a disaster. I, I, I'm upside down. Uh, if you can get me any kind of job back in there. So he goes, I'll try. I'll see what I can do. So this guy got me, this guy, Pat, got me a job at uh, Warburg for half the money I used to make when I left Lehman. But yeah. I didn't care. It was a job. I had, I had health insurance. Because at that point, yeah, I, you had getting meningitis to go to the bottom. hospital, yeah. I'd run up huge medical costs, too. Oh, my God. So I had the medical costs. I had the, um, the, the credit card debt. I'd run through all my savings. Um, as my mom's in there going, "You're putting good money behind bad money," which I really knew that never really understood that expression, and until I started really doing it and just pouring good money, I had bought a computer system, and they they got me. I was in hawk all over the place. And how old you're? Like twenty five and a half, twenty six years old. It's like nineteen ninety okay. four. Yeah, twenty six maybe. Yeah. So he got me a job uh, at SG Warburg, and then he and the, and I knew a bunch of the guys there that, that had been in Lehman. They got an offer to go to another bank and they took off. So I was kind of left there by myself at the lowest job at a bank. I was like the lowest guy there and really was just like, what am I going to do? I'm broke. My brother-in-law got me an apartment above a bagel factory <laughs> on, on 71st uh, seventy 71st first and 1st, I think it was, or 73rd and 1st. 73rd and 1st. It was right uh-huh. across Delizia Pizza. Like and, I, and what year was this? This must have been, like… four, yeah, 90,
1: ninety-five. Yeah. Because I was on 82nd and 1st from January like, 1st, 1995 till, like… So you know where Delizia is, like right? 2001, I think.
0: Uh, yeah. Like, I don't know if I know that, actually. No. Um, but the guys that owned Delizia Pizza owned my building. They had the apartment. My brother-in-law was their lawyer. And so they gave me a place, but it was right above a bagel factory. And so the rent was super cheap. And the apartment was super hot, but I didn't care. I had a, <laughs> I had a place as a fifth floor walk up.
1: Yeah, you were living, that's how we like each other. Yeah, I had. I was in a place that was owned by Primavera, which is a restaurant downstairs. <laughs> I was a fifth floor walk up, terrible place. And I stayed there, it was rent stabilized. I built right. a wall and I shared a, with my buddy, from first from college, then high school. And yeah, and it was
0: cheap and it, it got me to stay in the city, you know? So that was the. Um, yeah, that's funny. You were right over in the same area. Uh, and I was never an Upper East Side guy, though. I was always living down in the village, which I always thought was cool. Also, going yeah. to Upper East Side was kind of like, oh, my like God. Like, surrender. Yeah. Like, okay, so, but, but, but go through that, because then there was a guy that you met. Was that at Warburg where you met the guy that, that you call your rabbi? So, yeah. I was working in the back office operations, lowest job at the bank with no hope, no future. And the guys that brought me in all left, went to another bank. I was like, Nowheresville. And we just merged with this company called Swiss Bank. And Swiss Bank, the guy that came in there was this English guy that was super nice. And uh, they were handing out bonuses and they didn't have a bonus for me. And no one promised me a bonus, but I was like, I turned to the guy and said, oh, I thought I was gonna get a bonus. Like, and one of the other things is like, I won't go into it, but I had, one thing that was my medicine back then is like, I would go and play a public golf course with my brother. My brother and I were fighting with each other the entire time and someone ripped off my golf clubs out of the back of my pickup truck. That was like the last final straw of just the kick in the nuts that I was getting my, my that was my life then. So I couldn't even play golf anymore. So all I was trying to get was like a, like a five or $600 bonus. I could buy some golf clubs and I could do that. That was my like medicine. I, if I got into the golf course, I could play golf and I didn't have to think about how crummy my life was or how crummy my career was, or I had nothing going on. And you know, I had been eating chicken wings and was overweight and everything was just not good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, uh, I was just hoping for that, but the guy's like, you know, it was really nice. He's like, you know, I, I, I do not have any money. We don't have any money for your, for your, um, for your bonus. I'm like, ah, he's like, well, what, what else can I do for you? I was like, well, can you get, if there's any opportunities that come up on the trading floor, can you like get me an interview or get me a, a, a chance up there or anything that's up there, or any kind of middle office job or doing faxes for the guys up there? Can I do that? And It's like, yeah, I could do that for you. So they got me like a little like hope where I could go on the trading floor and like do some menial work, you know, basically the most menial jobs there. And um, there was an English guy, another English guy there. There's a lot of international people at, at, at Warburg. And uh, he was nice to me. We were talking. There was, His assistant was leaving. And um, he said, you know, I have an assistant job. You can be here, but it's, it's menial. You'll never be a salesman, you know, but- it's better than what you're doing right now. And I was like, all right, cool. And so I was a terrible assistant, too. Like, so I became an assistant. But the one thing I knew because <laughs> I wanted to be a salesman is, like, make sure when that phone rings, pick it up and, like, be you know courteous and prompt and know what you're talking about. So I knew what I wanted. And so when that situation came up, when... Um, some of the other salesmen would, like, you know, go off on vacation, and they those guys did very well. They would, like, you know, go off for two weeks to St. Bart's or something like that. Yeah. And so I would, like, make sure they were taken care of, their clients were taken care of, and did all that that, that type of stuff. And so it, was, it got decent at that. So it was a terrible assistant otherwise of sending out faxes and right. doing Right, but you were good, you got,
1: you got good at sales. I was good out on the phone. Now, was this the, you know, you talked to me about like Glengarry Glen Ross. Was this the point when you had watched Glen Gary? You told me you watched, you guys watched it like a hundred times well, and that's how you learned to sell.
0: There's a there, <laughs> good memory. I can't believe you remember some of the stuff I tell you. Uh, and yeah. it's true. <laughs> um, so I don't think I had really the salesman in me and everyone would always tell me like, Colin, you're not a salesman. You're like, you know, You need to be a little bit cutthroat to be a salesman and have that, like, ambitious streak and, like, uh, ask people for stuff. And that, that wasn't really my mentality. But I wanted that. You know, I really wanted to be a trader or a salesman. So I watched Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, like, so many times. And, you know, watching uh, always be close well, I'm watching the 10 minutes of <laughs> yeah. Alec Baldwin, Baldwin and that and uh, it's just like I think it's it's one of my favorite films still is right now because the acting's amazing with yeah. Jack Lemmon who's am- you, you see that and you're like why would you ever put yourself in that situation but if you're in that situation uh, what these guys are all faking it they're all yeah. faking it and what you realize with the sales is, is a lot of people are just faking that keep that bravado and they're playing a role yeah
1: I love that's something that, that I remember you telling me about how you imagined it, it was almost like you were putting on this, like, suit of, like, a, a, I don't know what, you, if you had a name for the guy that you were or if it, but it was, it was
0: very similar well, to... you wanted to be Richie Roma, if you remember the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah.
1: Pacino's role. But yeah, you almost said it was like you, like, put on a suit to, like, it was like you stepped into the role.
0: Well, you have to almost so, have to go numb when you're asking people for, like, large capital and these things. You would talk to hedge fund managers and they wanted to trade. They want to do stuff and uh, so I'm probably skipping here, but long story short, they, they gave me an opportunity to be a salesman. And after being like beaten down in the restaurant business and working hundred hours a week, like being the first one in at like 6.01. Was nothing. It was nothing. And like yeah. I get my weekends off and I get health insurance. And I, I only have to stay till like six o'clock. I was like, oh, I could, or seven o'clock at night, and like everyone else is leaving at five o'clock. I'm like, this is great. This is this is the life. Well, that that's something I
1: just want to pause for a second to tell people that are listening that that that's one of the things that you you can't duplicate by reading about something. You can only when you experience. The depth of, of despair <laughs> that you that you, did, that you experienced, really though. I mean, I, I think about it for all the actors I know that have been in the business as as long as I have and longer. And like, there there is something to the actual getting kicked in the face, and the and the actual process of having to pick yourself up and get back in the game and go back in the room. The, there's not a lot that really can substitute for that and like you said then when other things come down that seem like they would be tough before you had that experience right. now you're like no 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 that's that's all good by me i'm fine you you know yeah, you're I like 601 that, that's this i was already at Four places by this time in the morning the you funny know?
0: part is like no one really kicked me i kicked myself there's no one else to really play like all this was self-induced stupidity on my part a lot of times but, it is
1: i mean yeah
0: but uh but as soon as i got the chance to get out of it and kind of piece it together then everything started going right like it was weird like you go on this like and i would sit there like oh six months out i'd like to like get a nice client base where they were going and you know, start getting good clients. And the clients were growing and they were doing well. And so a lot of luck was in the right place, right time, right bank. Uh was an international bank where they didn't care that I went to Syracuse. You know, most of the kids in those type of jobs at the real big investment banks, the the Lehman's or the Goldman's, they were like Ivy League kids. So I wasn't going to get those jobs or they had MBAs. Yeah. So I just had an undergrad from Syracuse, an international bank. They didn't really care about what school you went to. Uh, so got lucky there and then got lucky Uh, With the product I was doing, which was convertible bonds, which was kind of a confusing product. No one really wanted to do it. It was like really hard to do and it was confusing. And I had a math minor in college. And so I understood math and quantitative uh, analysis. So I had that going for me. And I I was thirsty. I was like, I had... It was ugly for years. And so I I had to go, I had to make it happen. Yeah.
1: He, he, and he's being, this is an understatement here. Uh, if you're listening, because Colin is a guy that when, when I first met him and we were working on something, he had come to me about a script idea based on some of his experiences and, and we, we were talking about it. And I said, well, have you ever seen The Wire? And he said, no, what's that? And I said, well, it's this great show on HBO. You got to see it. So I swear it was like the next day or two days <laughs> later. I said, go see, you know, go watch The Wire. And you came back to me and you're like, okay, so I watched The Wire. I'm like, oh, cool. Okay, so you watched the pilot? You're like, no, I watched the entire series. <laughs> you watched like I, however many seasons there yeah. are. I think you watched them in like two days. I was like, wow, this guy is... You talk about a grinder, you're like you the are,
0: original binging guys, but like you're you're binge.
1: you really are uh, one of the the most uh focused and hard working people I know. When, like when you when you have something you want to do, you really figure it out and you're decisive and you and you go for it. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's it's interesting to hear you say right place at right time, which absolutely you you had to have been, right. but then you your skill set and your work ethic,
0: I think, capitalized on that.
1: So, so that was still in New York or this is when you had gone So to- I was in
0: New York and then, so I was doing a good job. I was working hard. Every day I would make sure I would do business. I was like, I just want to make sure I pay for my seat and make sure I'm, so, you know, there's salesmen there that would be kicked back. If they got an order, they got an order, if they didn't. And, and, and so I would grind and just pick up the phone all day long in the Richie Roma yeah. uh, mindset, like you're saying, you put on the armor every day and you, you, do it and you don't stop calling clients in your list until you do some business. And you know, clients are like, this is the fourth time you call me today. And you're like, let me just give you an order just that, so you stop calling me. And so that worked and you know, your boss noticed that. And then my boss, who's like, I call my rabbi and um, this guy, Phil, and he, he turned around and said, you know, I know how to get you ahead. So, I mean, that's huge when someone turns to you and says, I know how to get you ahead. He goes, I can only pay you a certain amount right now, um, but if I make you the head of hedge fund sales in London, it's going to help you a lot. And he goes, I see the way you're working and, you you know, you're diligent. And so uh, that's what we're going to do. You're going to go to London. And so uh, at that point, how old are you at this point? Like late twenties, whatever. Um, so you'd been. Maybe, this is like after the wing debacle, which yeah. when you got
1: back in about twenty six. This is maybe two years later. Maybe? Two years later, about okay. yeah. So so it's pretty speedy recovery. Yeah.
0: Oh, it's it's and it's all happening and um, and the compensation's getting decent where I can also start paying a lot of the things back like yeah. the credit cards and everything like that. So, um, so the the real thing was getting to London, getting the opportunity to work there. Um. And going there, and, and uh, we had just merged with this company called UBS. So there's a lot of mergers in banking then. And then at UBS, the head of the group's like, well, we don't cover hedge funds. So you're, we're going to send you back to the States, and you're out, type of thing. Oh. And so I said, I said, Mitch, I said, no, 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 these guys are, these are good clients. I make them good clients. I'm, I'm, I'm firm with them. We do good business. Give me, give me a couple of months to show you, you know, that I, I'll, I'll pull my weight here. He's like, all right, all right. He goes, I think they're crap. I think they're spivvy. You know. Hedge funds are bad guys. That was the mindset back then. Banks didn't really love covering hedge funds, like Citadel, who your brother works for. Yeah. Those guys who, who are my clients. And so um, after a few weeks, he's like, no, no, you're, you're more than pulling your weight. Like, you're here. You're good. You're in charge of the hedge fund business at UBS for convertible arbitrage. So, I was like, great, you know, this is cool. Like, so, at any time a hedge fund wanted to get coverage now, they would say, oh, let Colin cover them. And these were all small hedge funds, Citadel, Highbridge, Oxif. So, I would get to cover these guys, and they started moving overseas. They, started they were small then. They were they're small. They're not anymore. They're yeah. all the, they they they're, became they're, the biggest commission payers yeah. on Wall Street. Right. And I was the guy collecting commissions and then I was in the right product and the product lent itself to like you could make you could do the convertible bond was a bond and there was equity involved and there's options there's many ways to hedge it and so you you collect these commissions six different ways it's something we always talk about like broaden your pill I just didn't sell convertible bonds I sold equity I sold uh, hedging out the bond risk I sold uh, prime brokerage or lending out securities so I would I did many different things to to, you know, and I, at that point I was so hungry. I was like, I'll do anything. And once again, I had that mindset of like, get in there at 5:59 if the other guys get in at six o'clock. Yeah. And so, I guess <laughs> I didn't really think about it, but I guess I was pretty competitive at that point. And then had that that I was pretty salty by that point because I had lost all that money in the the wing business and wanted to do well. And could see the now I could see it happening. Like the clients were growing, the business was growing. UBS became the biggest guys in convertible bonds. I had the best client base for that. And I'm I'm the number one salesman in convertibles, and the equity floor, and now the bond floor because I'm doing all the credit hedging. So at that point, I'm like, I gotta get, I'm going to get compensated here. This is yeah. going to be great. And then other banks started calling. I got a call from you know, Goldman, Merrill, and this other small German bank, Commerce Bank. And a guy from Morgan Stanley went there. And uh, he said, um, I want to talk to you. And I was like, all right, let's talk. And I was like, I didn't want to leave. I had a great situation at UBS now. We're number one on all league, league tables. And so basically, it's like leaving the Yankees and going to like, you know, the Minnesota Twins. Oh, or oh, yeah, like yeah. Going for commerce. Like the guy at Commerce Bank's like, look, you name a price on how much you want to get paid and tell me what it is. And this is right before the dot-com blow up. This is 2000. The markets are screaming. Everything's going crazy. And I turned to the guy and I, I had written it down and and I made up a ridiculous number because I really didn't want to. Because you work wanted there. to get out. I didn't know. I wanted to stay yes, oh, oh. I didn't want to leave. Yeah. So I, I put down a ridiculous number that I would never agree to. And they agreed. And they agreed to it. It was a three year deal. And it was right before the dot com blow up. And it was all cash. It wasn't even bank shares or anything like that. So it was a finale. So it turned me from like a guy that was like literally 24 months, 30 months before completely broke to ridiculous things that I had never even thought about. Yeah, and it was that quick, and just a lot of things went right. A lot of things.
1: How like, has that shaped your perception of money and how tr- people treat people with money versus those without? Uh, how people view money, how you view it? Like, is there any I, like I think, what? what are, if you, have, I think
0: uh, success and this fine line between the Brad Pitt and the Matt Del Negros of the world, I, I, and, and you know, or even Tom Cruise for that matter. Like, I don't think. I think it's a very, there's a lot of luck involved in anything, and even my, in my situation back then, it was very lucky to be at all those things kind of went well. And I think that happens across the board with a lot of people being successful. And here, here's a funny thing. I was just thinking about the other day. You see these guys, the Winklevoss twins?
1: Right, right.
0: They're like billionaires now on this Bitcoin stuff, and they called Bitcoin years ago, like two or three years ago. And now I'm thinking like, well, maybe those guys did think of the Facebook idea and like Zuckerberg yeah. was just a, like he was the quantitative right. computer science guy that thought and they actually had the whole concept down and maybe he did. Say, but right. anyway, right place, right time. And, you know, right. credit to him making it happen. But like I'm sure there's many computer science guys that could have done what Mark Zuckerberg did at the time. And maybe if they had talked to the the twins, they would have been the guys that did Facebook. And right. Mark Zuckerberg would have just been a general uh, – and he, you know, and I think a lot of guys have a narrative after they become successful of how they made it. Yeah. Which I talked to that a lot of people like, you can change the story around once you make it, but I think there's a ton of luck and uh, right place, right time. And then once you do it, just stay with it, I guess. And uh, there's also a thing that I was working with a guy then that was similar age that started doing really well, that uh, he got a million dollar bonus. Actually, he was, like, a year younger than me. And this is when we were as Board were And I wasn't making that much at that point. He got a million dollar and he freaked out. And I was like, Mac, why, why are you freaking out? And he was like, you know, I don't deserve this. I grew up. My parents were teachers. This isn't right. I shouldn't be getting paid this amount of compensation. He up and quit, like, moved to, like, the, the woods of Vermont. So I think there's a fair amount of people that get... Um, well, there's a lot of, of there's a lot of emotion around money, money. If you're talking about money or, or like, but people are afraid of success too. I know some people are like, I think they don't want the responsibility that comes with it or you have to repeat it. Like you have to, and that's equally money to success, but whatever it is. And like yeah. people are, um, uh, not self-sacrificing, but self-sabotage themselves because yeah. they don't want the responsibility of, um, being successful or or keeping it up or something. And I I have some, I go on some friends or family that have that type of trait and I can see it too. And even myself, sometimes I'm like, ah, you know, I don't, I don't want to go there. I don't want to like, even though I know who to help my career later on before I left. um, What
1: about, what about like how people treat you in terms of like, uh, I think you and I have talked about this where, you, you know, now once you've been kind of anointed as a guy who's a guy, you know, oh, like, yeah. oh, he's the guy. Oh, that's Colin. He did this, this. Now you kind of, do you feel like people were taking your advice way more readily at this point? As yeah, opposed I guess. To before, like, I guess right there's the yeah, I mean, definitely
0: people, there's a large amount of people that um, once someone is successful, they gravitate towards that mm-hmm. in a weird way. Yeah, And I even see that with Toby Who's had these success wildly successful books and popular books, and these people just like gravitate towards them and it's kind of like creepy and eerie. Like I see it. I'm like, he wrote a book that's really smart and clever and um has a lot of information. He's written several books that are like that. But it's like, well, you know, why are you just like stop following him around? They like he almost has like fanboys or and yeah. I'm not saying that I ever had fanboys or anything like that, but people with, like uh, you know, like, how'd you do it or whatever? And it's like, I don't know. It just like, you, you, I was at a, I was at right place, right time. Yeah. Just, there's nothing more than that. I think it's, that, well, uh, it's I think, goes. I
1: think you're, you're right. I think you're right. And you're also downplaying it. It was a little more. I needed than right, to get, but, I needed to yeah, get my ass kicked without a doubt. Yeah. And you needed to, to perform in the right, but yeah, there is a certain amount of that. Like, you know, the, the ball bounces the right way. Right. And, and then, um, but you also put yourself in a position. You know, you you did put yourself in a position to be up at bat. You did take the risk, even going to.
0: I was single too. I could do anything. I'd run around like you know. I would stay out with clients all night. I could stay at work all morning. Like I didn't have kids and like yeah, um, didn't have that responsibility. How has that shaped you now? How has that changed you? Because you do have kids. Yeah, now now, I mean it's it's a lot different. But you know, once again, once you have a, a bunch of capital behind you or whatever, and and now I have a hedge fund with with Toby. Um you can look at things like the long way, like a long-term way of looking at things and you don't have to be in a rush to do anything. Yeah. And in this society that we live in right now, uh, everything is, uh, you have to have capital behind you, you have the money, you you need to to live, to exist. Yeah. And, you know, there's a a cutoff point. If you have a certain amount of money, things get really easy for you. Like life gets a lot easier in this country after like, $250,000, Two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Just I'll throw out that number, and that's kind of what it was twenty years ago. But it is. I think it's kind of like that now. Like if you have two hundred fifty thousand dollars, you can really start saving money. Like and you under that, like I think there's so much pressure of anyone that's two hundred fifty thousand dollars like, or less that they constantly like. It's it's almost impossible to save money, and it, maybe it's maybe it's even higher. Maybe it's half a million dollars now. I don't know where the cutoff really is. But Meaning as an annual income, you need an annual income like that um, in order to start saving, because if you're making, say, if you're making, well, certainly if you live in New York or LA, yeah, yeah. Or any place, wherever you're living, because you're going to want, if you're living in Chicago or, or like Austin, Texas, you'll need a lake lake house when you're there. You need a boat, or you need you need people will. Put that pressure on you. You want to get that stuff. Well, up. depending what circles you're running in, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I wouldn't
1: say people would need a boat or need a lake. But yeah, they don't there. need. <laughs> it.
0: And I, I, you know, and I, I'm kind of a person that like doesn't buy. Any, I'm kind of a little bit of a cheapskate, so I don't really buy anything. I don't really need anything. I'm, I um i do not really have anything fancy. So yeah,
1: you kind of it's it's interesting. You kind of uh, live. You know, I think you live well, but you don't you don't you're, you're not very uh, flashy considering you know what I mean like you no really you're like for a guy I think the image of like oh you know hedge fund guy or whatever I think you're pretty um you, you seem to me to live a, a pretty smart pretty simply yeah yeah there's Thank not a
0: lot of yeah you know, I don't think yeah I don't think you need that much I mean to be really happy I mean my like my one big thing I do every day is I do yoga for an hour every day at yoga studio here in Santa Monica and and uh, that's kind of like, that's kind of like my dessert. Like, I love it. It's good for me and it's, it's fun and I do it. And, and it's, you know, you pay one bill a year and it's a really nice place and the people are nice there and like that. But I don't need much more than that. Like if I can do that and like, yeah. eat healthy and live in Santa Monica. And you you walk your kids to school and- Yeah, and, I can and, walk, yeah, exactly. And the kids are, you know, love it here. And just what's not to love here except for wildfires. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. We're, we're yeah. sucking in fumes For every listening,
1: day. Right now, well, I don't know. You know, this will come out. Actually, this will come out pretty soon. So it might still be in our minds. But uh, yeah, we're in the midst of uh, fires just across the four hundred and five so, freeway, um, which but, have, have not
0: blown this way as, as we were kind of warned that they might. But it's um, super nice here. That's all I really need. Like I, I love it. The weather's great, and we're you know we have this hedge fund which we started almost two years ago now. and uh, Tell tell us a little bit about
1: that as we start to wind down. Tell okay. us a little bit about like, you know, we kind of even skipped over the whole thing of where you and I met and you were kind of like dabbling your toe into uh, uh, film, stuff, TV film stuff. and TV and everything. Because um, actually I, w- I would consider, you know what, we, we should kind of just, uh, rock, just touch do, on that quick. for a second because I think that was another...
0: That was a big no for you. Oh God, yeah. Uh, and the funny thing is, is I'll tell you, it's not even a no, and that's that's how hard Hollywood is. I didn't even get the no. Like I can yeah. deal with getting a no. I just got the sound of silence. Uh, I got well, no. You know me. what? That is that actually
1: is the pain of Hollywood. It's, there it's is there like, is no. You go, it's it's like as an actor. I mean, there are a lot of times when you go in for something, and it, there are sometimes when you just you, you kind of after a while you're like, so did that. Did I get that? They're like, oh, no, no, no. You know, I mean, now I'll call it feels you, like, now it feels like call usually me, I'm told, you. like, oh, they went another direction. They have this. But sometimes it's like you have to, like, pry just to get an answer. That's about a role as an actor. And and for what you were trying to do with, like, you know, take meetings and raising money
0: and trying to get projects developed, it, it yeah, there's, it's like a silent vacuum. Well, it was kind of, it was fun. And we'll just do a quick, the story on that is that Evan Durin, best friend growing up, um, was living out here and he was working on Entourage as like a PA, whatever, low, low job, but he's a likable guy and he was talking to those guys and watching the show or whatever, and he came and visited me in London. And he's like, this is exactly like Entourage, the life you're living I was a single guy doing well, and we had a thing where I was like friends with the other salesmen at the other banks, and we all covered the same clients. And what we realized is we weren't competing with each other. I wasn't competing with the salesman at Goldman Sachs. I wasn't competing with the salesman Merrill Lynch. I was competing with the salesman next to me at UBS or at whatever bank I was, because there's always a certain bonus pool. And you had to kind of like, you wanted the most money out of the bonus pool. So so we all became friends, the guys that covered and made sure our clients were taken care of. So my Evan came over, saw that going down. I was like, this is really amazing what you guys are up to and what you're doing over here. So uh, I was like, yeah, we call it The Convertible Cartel. And he's like, that's a TV show. Yeah. So we, when I had retired. And
1: that's when I had met you, you had put
0: together a real uh, sizzle, sizzle, which is awful. And looking back on it now, we we did a script and we did all kinds of stuff, and I gave it to you. And I was. Because you were like, I looked at you, I was like, oh, here's a guy. It's like, you know, Ben and Sopranos, Ben and Westwing. You know, tall, handsome guy, he's gonna like, you know, this guy's the next uh, Jimmy Stewart, whatever. And you're like,
1: yeah.
0: so I was like, wow, and you're super smart. Like, you know, went to BC, you know, you're no dummy. Like, you know, that whole, like, people like think uh, the whole California, LA is flaky or the acting industry. But what you find out is like, there's more like Harvard people hanging out in Hollywood than there are in Convertible Arbitrage, which yeah, has a lot of yeah,
1: people. It's interesting. Um, but yeah, I I remember uh, saying to Deirdre, I'm like, oh, I'm such an idiot. This guy comes to me with the script idea. And I basically you kind ripped of it, ripped it apart. Which I loved. Which you ended up loving. But I didn't hear from you for like two or three days. And I thought, man, this one guy comes to me. He's got money. And I tell him his script is terrible. Well, no, I'm like, what
0: an idiot I am. It's but, good, though. But like, that, I,
1: led us down, that led us down a path of some other things that we worked on um but yeah that that's that,
0: yeah so go on sir. so yeah so you know we just we worked on that thing you, you said it was crummy i agree with you you're right we we're like i was and and evan's a good guy and he worked on entourage and he actually wrote us a spec script for entourage which was excellent excellent i had read it and they wouldn't take it yeah so little did i know how how much the gatekeepers and how much Hollywood is controlled by that. And everyone had warned me. My sister had told me and people had said, no, no, you, you can't get in. There's, you're not getting in. It's like, what do you mean? If you write something good, you just submit it and, you know, you'll get representation and it's, it's, whatever, you know, the, the cream always rises to the top type of thing. You know, it just, no, it's not how it works. This town, like, and it is, and that's fine. I get the rules and that's cool. It took me two years to figure it out. I yeah. then, you know, I always think, and I'm, I'm probably
1: wrong, but my, my, philosophy on it has always been that still applies in Hollywood. It's just a really long-term view that you have to take. So you, I don't know that you can get in without it being like a roulette situation where maybe you get in quickly. I don't know you can get in if you have a really finite time frame. If you're, if you put a long, long time. I mean, it's like a long time. Well, I think you kids can eventually, up in theater, I think,
0: yeah. like working in theater. Like I didn't do any of that. Right. I didn't. I have no business being out here and doing yeah, that. Like, yeah. just like,
1: are you kidding me? But like, then you started to dabble in the film finance world and you're doing that. And then you you kind of came to the, the conclusion that like, it's interesting hearing about your take on tennis versus baseball, because it's almost the same. It's almost like baseball to you was the way Hollywood is. It was like, oh, it depends if this coach likes you and this and that. Whereas tennis was like, you beat the guy in the match, you go ahead. Exactly. You know, which is what Ollie, I had Ollie on the show recently and he was a baseball player and then he went to golf and he was saying golf is such a meritocracy. Uh, I love golf for that. Yeah. You either, you sink your putt or you don't. You know, you have a a lower score than the other guy or you don't. And that's that's it. Whereas there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of uh, kind of murkiness in and politics in every other
0: business really you know even even in baseball that's the whole thing with Moneyball. you're 100 really you're 100 correct and that's so funny you should talk about that because it's like that's what i loved and i became a golfer after tennis because tennis you play a certain way or i'm like oh you push the ball you cut the ball you love the ball you're not a good player like i just beat you 6-1-6-2 what are you talking about like you know they tell you they they describe how like how you beat them but that you're not a good player so then my brother got me in the golf I started playing golf. It's like, it's a number. Here it is. And that's what sales was too, yeah. which I kind of like. Well, I can see that with and- you
1: because that's you. With, with That was your turn back to finance, I think was more that. You were like, hey, this is what it is. I'm either going to, it's either going to work or it's not going to work. And I just want to know. And I would <laughs> say the arts and show business, it's not really that way. I mean, it, you know, it, it is to a degree, I think, again, in the long term, that's why I always think like those lifetime achievement awards are really the best ones to get. Those are the people, you know, the Meryl Streep's, the Robert De Niro. When you can put together a career like that over that span of time, that's excellence over time. And to get, you you know, to even be considered for Oscars or independent spirits, you have to be super talented. But it's also, it's like, it's, you know, what was the movie? What was the story? What was going on that year? What was, you know, what was the role? There are a lot of factors that yeah. go in. So I, I always look at it when you see an actor or a filmmaker that, that just, you know, kind of keeps on hitting at, at a high level. That, that
0: I And love. They, These people are supremely talented, like amazing, amazing people, like intellig- incredibly intelligent. Um, so... I didn't have any business really being in the whole f- TV film. And I always thought TV was the thing that's better. I don't I think film's kind of a dying business. I didn't think it was really a good business for me to be involved with, but I thought it was a good way to get in and try to do TV. Mm-hmm. I think TV is going to grow massively. I think it's the golden age. Even for more TV. from where? It oh turned. yeah, yeah, huge. I think it's going to be like Apple's going to be in the, playing in the space. Google's already playing in the space. Amazon's way, way playing Facebook in the space. Is now. But we've seen it all. Like since I started. Like, and I kind of knew that. And my friend Evan, who's, he was saying like TV's where it's at. And I, it's like, oh my god, all these technology companies they have ma- massive market caps. They have massive amounts of cash flow. Like they'll start putting in and buying and creating content. And then they can create content all over the world that's scalable. Yeah. So they can sell it to
1: anywhere else. I in the mean, world. look look at you know, Netflix, look at Amazon right now. I mean Amazon's good They're a beast. I uh, think and- you were the one that told me that when I got Goliath. You said, Oh, their their balance sheets are Incredible because of all the business they do online with, uh, with you know, everybody oh, the broadcasters do all of, their sh- all of their shopping through Amazon. You know, so th- this, their money that they're putting into TV and their Amazon Originals is, uh, you know, at least at this point, I wonder if at a certain point- It'll, it'll get scaled back right now is the initial thrust of it. No, know?
0: it's going to grow because they're going to eventually do it. It's going to grow massively, and it's going to bury the broadcasters. Because like the NBC, the ABC, the CBS, they have to do a broad audience when, they, when they're doing the content. Kind of, these guys can be focused on what they're doing, yeah. go for a niche audience. They have the means of distribution, which they never had before, which is the whole bottleneck of uh, network TV. And they can roll it out to the rest of the world as long as they create content in those areas. Yeah. As long as they're willing to, to write the check. they like, they almost have a formula too. They're almost like Netflix is quantitative. Like, and then we can go, we could, we could talk about uh, the book that we all, I started reading, which really got me into- um, Oh, which one? Blake Snyder's book. Oh, Save the Cat. Save the Cat. All those, that yeah. that really appealed to me. Once I realized that it was yeah. formulaic. And then there's that other one, Elephant Bucks, right? Yeah, which yeah, was so like <laughs> the <that> half hour, <laughs> yeah. But But- Save the Cat is brilliant. And once I read that, that really appealed to me. I was like, oh, I can figure this out. But the gatekeepers well, are there yeah, for, for a reason.
1: Brilliant in one way and also could be dangerous in the wrong hands. But anyway, we're getting kind of- But there's
0: no scorecard. And you're right. I am a scorecard guy. And running a hedge fund, there's a scorecard.
1: Yeah. So tell day. us about the hedge fund. Tell us about it before we close out so like people can yeah. hear like what it is that you're excited about. With it, um, I know that I don't think it's available. That was a whole other no you had, right? Where you were going to, you, you were working with another company to make it a mutual fund. So it was available to the average Joe to invest in your portfolio. But now it's back. That that didn't happen, right? Well, it's
0: the step back and all that is I, I was managing my own capital and investing in the markets. And I wanted to meet a value guy, like in the Warren Buffett mode and read Toby's books, which were... Mind blowing! They're awesome. I was like underlining them. I was like, "This guy's a genius." What are the names of like some of his books? Do you know the names? Deep value, value, quantitative value, and and
1: Toby's last name is Carlisle. Carlisle and the Acquires. I'll I'll interview him at some point when he's not um,
0: giving birth. Yeah, yeah, I mean, his wife give birth right now. (laughs) And and so this guy is brilliant. He's Australian. Um, He gives lots of speeches. Talks to CFA things. The guys that like he wrote a book with a professor from Columbia's uh, business school and they have the best value school, and that's where Buffett went to school. And so, Toby's written his books, I read them, I looked them up, Also, of a realized the guy lived in LA, so I'm like, oh, let me go meet him for lunch, and then like Googled, like Google mapped his address, and it was in the Shores. Yeah, which, like, is where, which is the building where Colin and I met. We lived out here. And I lived in this place, this big two-story building in Santa Monica, border of Santa Monica and Venice, uh, uh, right on the ocean. Um, I sent him an email. I said, hey, look, you, do you live in the shores? And he's like, no, no, that was my old place. I was like, I live there. So we found out we both lived in the same
1: place at the same time. We didn't know each other. And then me. you just kind of met and had a meeting of minds and realized you were somewhat on the same page. We
0: met and I, I have this arbitrage background. And that's how I was um, managing my own capital, but wanted the arbitrage and value, which was like originally what Warren Buffett did back in the 50s and 60s. So, um, so we met. We immediately partnered up. Uh, we started uh, investing our own money, some of our friends, family's money, uh, a few people that Toby had had in his previous hedge fund. Um, and so uh, we had a really good first year, we had a company approach us about doing a mutual fund. So uh, a mutual fund would have helped us uh, taking investors at small for smaller amounts. The hedge fund we have to uh, people have to be qualified investors and they have to have a certain amount of capital and they usually have to be worth over a million dollars to invest. Yeah, and um, and so we wanted all these people that Toby uh, he has like ten thousand or twenty thousand followers on Twitter and um, that call in and say like I like to invest in your strategy that have fifty thousand dollars, twenty five thousand dollars, hundred thousand dollars, whatever it is, but we can't manage it. We're not allowed to by SEC rules. We thought the mutual fund would do that. We rolled out a mutual fund. We immediately got this. We'd take we'd these orders from a big fund manager in uh, Florida and we had some orders in New York. And we couldn't get on here it is, gatekeepers once again, on platforms where people had their money. So, Fidelity, if you have money at Fidelity, you have to be on their platform. If you have money with a broker at Merrill Lynch, you have to be on their platform. And they decide which mutual funds they offer. And so they have all kinds of deals where they offer only the ones that they you know deem yeah. worthy or whatever. So here we were, we have this guy that's a great author, a guy that's experienced in arbitrage, we have kick-ass returns our first year, and we can't get any order, we can't get on any platforms. So once again, you know, ready aim, shoot. So I'm like more of a shoot ready aim type of guy. And so we went into this mutual fund foolishly. Um, And then we turned to the guys. We're like, we really need to do an ETF. And so um, it would be listed on your stock exchange. So if you had an account at Merrill Lynch, you could say, all right, I like Toby. I like Colin's Strategy. I tell my broker at Merrill Lynch, go buy their ETF that that Carbon Beach is managing. So it works. It's just not as. So we're working on it. We're working on trying to. We've been talking to a bunch of people. We don't have anything yet. We're trying to figure it out. I I probably shouldn't even mention it to SEC rules, but we don't have anything yet. We had a mutual fund. We closed it in three months, John not because the performance <laughs> was fine. It was great. It was just we couldn't get on platforms. We couldn't yeah. get it out. We had the gatekeepers at Morgan Stanley or or, um, or Merrill Lynch, which were the big wire houses, uh, Fidelity, where people keep their savings or keep their investments, uh, wouldn't put us on their platform. It, so we we had all these orders, we couldn't put them on, so we basically said, all right let's figure out something else so we're we're figuring that out so and so now you're 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 up and running though
1: for people that are worth so more we than can the- take
0: in high net worth capital um yeah. and even that we're kind of like we're going to wait till we do the one thing and then uh get okay. a couple of seed investors for the uh limited partnership yeah and so we have some people lined up for that that are interested in doing that and um but it's good. It's the returns have been nice. And, uh, and I've enjoyed doing that. It's like, I do a lot of reading now. It's, we don't have to manage anyone. It's just Toby and I, it's a two man shop. It's like two men, two men in a garage yeah. with a phone and a Bloomberg. Yeah. it's um, great. And you
1: got we, your, you got your treadmill here, you got treadmill. your high desk, it's you got the ocean nice. view, It's the, good. the
0: flat screen. It's Even cool. like this is great. Like yeah. we got the studio that was in, uh, um, an ocean perfect. Avenue and, it's like half the price of getting office space on two blocks away it's, it's if we so, went commercial. yeah. Like, so this is residential, but yeah. it's a studio, it's fine, it works for us. I don't want to work in the house. Yeah. And so there you go. It's it's so I'm enjoying it. I love it. It's 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 mentally stimulating. And it's once again it's a scorecard. Yeah. I don't it doesn't the no's are going away. <laughs> I yeah. guess. I, I can just be like, here are the numbers, these are the returns. If you're interested, invest. If not, then don't then don't. Yeah. I get it. <laughs>
1: Well, listen, thank you. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Uh, we could talk for hours, but um, not, not for <laughs> 10,000 notes. Uh, I really appreciate it. So if people want to invest, if you're uh, a high net worth individual and you want to invest, it's called Carbon Beach Asset Management Fund. This is Colin McIntosh, and I'll have his partner, uh, Toby Carlisle, who's the author, uh, on at some point in the future. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Thanks again for listening to 10,000 No's. If you haven't subscribed to us yet, please do. So each week's episode is automatically downloaded to your computer or phone. And if you like what you heard, please help us get the word out by sharing it with your friends and family. We'll see you next week. Thanks.